Well, this evening we look together to the truth of God's Word as it is summarized in Lord's Day 36. Lord's Day 36 looks at the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. But as we prepare to look at that, I'd like to read with you from James chapter 3. Now, James 3 does not merely talk about the third commandment, but rather it talks a little more broadly about how we use our tongues, how we speak, and the significance of how we speak. In the first 12 verses of James 3, listen to what James says. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Now in Lord's Day 36, we're asked two simple questions. First of all, what is God's will for us in the third commandment? And the answer is that we neither blaspheme nor misuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. In a word, it requires that we use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe, so that we may properly confess Him, pray to Him, and praise Him in everything we do and say. Is blasphemy of God's name by swearing and cursing really such serious sin that God is angry also with those who do not do all they can to help prevent it and forbid it? Yes, indeed. No sin is greater. No sin makes God more angry than blaspheming His name. That is why He commanded the death penalty for it. Beloved saints called to honor God. It was a decade ago, but I still remember the phone call well. At the time, I served as moderator on an email list called CoURC. We don't use those lists too much anymore, but they were a really neat resource. The way it would work is you would email the list, and everyone on the list received a copy of that email. 
And you could respond either individually to that person or to the list. And so you could get a dialogue going among all the members of this list. This particular list focused on the United Reformed Churches. And it had hundreds of members. It, it was an excellent resource for getting to know other people in our federation, learning more about the URC, even exploring theological topics. As moderator, <clears throat> my work was fairly simple. Remind folks once in a while that we're brothers and sisters in Christ and that this conversation needs to happen like you would have a conversation in your living room. In other words, recognizing that other people are watching and that God is present. So if a disagreement or a dispute got a little too heated, I would step in. If somebody spoke in public something that should be kept in private, I would moderate that. It's a pretty simple task on the whole. Well, at this time, <clears throat> a conversation had gotten a little bit out of line, a little too heated, and so I had stopped it. And afterward, the man who had begun the conversation called me on the phone. Now, this was a man that I knew by reputation, but not personally, but he was a guy who grew up in the Reformed churches. He was not a young man. His children were grown and had children of their own. He had served as an elder on and off for a number of years. But the language that he used while speaking with me on the phone was the language I would expect to hear from unbelievers at a construction site or at a bar. It was just vulgar. He wasn't swearing at me, but he was using vulgarity as a matter of course in a way that, frankly, left me stunned. Not because I'm easily stunned by language. I grew up in the country. I grew up around folks who didn't watch their tongues all that carefully, but given the individual with whom I was speaking, I was stunned. And I remember thinking at the time that the way this man uses his tongue will negate his witness. No question. By the same token, a different story I heard, didn't witness, about offense caused by folks who were unwilling to tolerate a vulgar tongue. It happened at a service project to which several churches sent youth. One of the churches had sent youth from a city, a project that they were working with. These weren't kids that grew up in the church. They weren't kids who had parents in the church, but they were kids that the church was, was working with. And their language was a bit rough including, in fact, using the Lord's name in vain. Well, some kids from another church, from their youth group, took offense at that, and they should have taken offense. But the way they handled it was no less offensive. They should have politely gone up and explained that it dishonors God to use His name in such a way. They should have asked them to be more careful with their speech and, and shown them love in doing so. But instead... They kept throwing glances, dirty looks at the other group. And finally, one of them walked up and said, You guys have filthy mouths. You need to start reading your Bibles. And he turned and walked away. And that first group, of course, was surprised and offended. They didn't even know what they had done wrong. And so they saw the other group not as those correcting them and leading them into what is right, but as folks that were self-righteous and rude. 
Now, in both of these cases, we have folks who appear to be Christians. They profess Christ. They attend church. Serving God is important to them. But their language, their words, their tongues end up dishonoring God and giving a bad name to His people. It is that which the third commandment calls us to consider and guard against. Instead, God's grateful people, we're called to honor God with our tongues. And that's what I want to speak about this evening. God's grateful people strive to honor the Lord with their tongues. And the first part of doing that is, is negative. God's will is that we not blaspheme or misuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor share in such horrible sins. This is our duty as kings to prevent the misuse of God's holy name. And that's our first point. As kings, we're to prevent the misuse of God's holy name. Now, when I say that, as kings, I'm asking you to think back on Lord's Day 12. Kids, do you remember back when we talked about the names of our Savior. First we saw that He's Jesus, which means He is the one who saves. And then we saw that He is Christ, which means the Anointed One. That He is the one anointed as prophet, priest, and king in order to perfectly deliver us. And we saw at that time that as His people, as those who are united to Him by faith, we too share in His anointing. So that just as He is prophet, priest, and king, we share in that calling to serve as prophets, priests, and kings. And as kings... Our calling is to strive with a good conscience against sin, the devil, sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for all eternity. So we're called to fight here and now against Satan. We're called to be soldiers in a spiritual war, seeking to promote the kingdom and the honor of God. But our battle isn't physical, is it? It's a spiritual battle. And part of that spiritual battle involves preventing the misuse of God's name. Now, why is that? Why is it so important that we prevent the misuse of God's name? I wondered that as a kid. Third commandment's about God's name. Who cares about a name? But God cares. Because His name is representative of whom He is. It's a symbol that encompasses His reputation, His character, His works, His all. We understand symbols. Think of a flag. Kids, think of the American flag. The American flag is just oftentimes about three by five. It's a collection of fabrics that are sewn together in a particular pattern. It's really not all that valuable in terms of monetary value of the the component parts. But when you put those parts together in that way, with the stars and the stripes... It's not just a piece of fabric anymore, is it? It's representative of our country. We get offended when people mistreat that flag, that symbol. Because when they do things like burn it or stomp on it or wear it like a piece of clothing, they're showing that they disrespect not just a piece of fabric, but the nation for which it stands. We should be offended by that. Well, God's name represents Him. He is the Lord. That's how we usually in our Bibles represent His covenant name, Yahweh. It means He is. He is the God who is and who was and who always will be. 
He is God, the sovereign one, the creator, the king. He is Jesus, the one who saves, Christ, the anointed one who delivered us. In every one of his names, his reputation is put on display before us. And so when someone misuses that name, they're slandering God. They're showing disrespect for him. They're showing that they don't care. That they hate the one who has saved us, who delivers us, who made us and provides for us. So our God is serious about the use and the misuse of his name. In the Ten Commandments, God says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Providentially, we just heard that word this morning. Shava is the Hebrew word, and it means that which is worthless, that which is of no effect, that is empty. God doesn't want us to, to use His word as a mere placeholder. Or as something common. He doesn't want us to use it without purpose, without care and reverence. Because when we do that, we show that we don't have any care or reverence toward Him. He emphasized that by by recording a specific incident in Leviticus 24. What had happened is two men got into a fight. And in the midst of that fight, one of the men had blasphemed God with a curse. In other words, he used God's name as part of a slur against the other man. And in doing so, he, he used God's name without reverence, without honor. And the people heard that. And they didn't know what to do about it. They knew it was a violation of the third commandment, but they didn't know what to do about it. So they took the man into custody. And they said, Moses, tell us what to do. And Moses sought God's guidance. And here's what we read. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take outside the camp him who is cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And whoever blasphemes his na- the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. That's serious. And it's not just serious because he he lost his life. It's serious because that physical death demonstrated the spiritual death that he would experience eternally. Because when, when we blaspheme God's name, when we use his name as a common curse word, we're showing that we don't love God, that we hate him. We scorn him. And God can't overlook that. So we're called to prevent the misuse of God's name. That means, first of all, we need to prevent his misuse, the misuse of His name in ourselves. We need to reign in our own tongues. Our reading from James 3 emphasized how powerful an instrument is the tongue. Kids, did you notice the two things that he compared it to early in that reading? First, the bit in the mouth of a horse and the rudder at the bottom of a ship. You know what that is? A bit... You young ladies, most of you like riding, or like the idea at least of riding horses. A bit is that small little metal thing that goes in the horse's mouth. When you're riding it, you can't even see that bit. But that's what the reins are attached to. And if you've ridden a horse, you know that all you have to do is just move those reins a little bit and it transfers that movement to the horse's mouth. And that little tiny piece of metal is able to move those hundreds of pounds of horse to the right or to the left. Or to a full stop. Same with a rudder on a ship. A ship is a big thing. 
the rudder is just a small structure at the very back at the bottom. But with the movement, the slightest movement of that small rudder in the back, the whole ship is turned in the direction that the captain wants it to go. And so is the tongue. It's small. It's easy to overlook, but its power is great. It can be used to build people up or to tear them down. It can be used as an instrument of service or of warfare. It can justify a man or aid in his condemnation. It can, it can be employed in glorifying God or in blaspheming His name. And since we're born in the clutches of sin, James says, no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Indeed, he says the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the whole course of nature. The tongue left to the sins which come natural to us is evil. And it causes evil. But we, because we trust in Christ, we are no longer controlled by those evil desires, are we? We have the Holy Spirit who's leading us into a different path where we seek to honor God rather than dishonor Him, to love Him rather than hate Him. So James sets before us the competing desires that, that battle in our hearts, right? Because when we come to Christ, we start battling against that sin, fighting against what used to control us. And he shows us the inconsistency of allowing our tongue to speak as it once did. With it, we bless our God and Father. That's what we do in worship, isn't it? And with it, we curse men who've been made in the, in the similitude, in the likeness of God. That shouldn't be so, should it? Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. If our hearts belong to God, then so must our tongues. And that means we, we need to stand firm. We need to work hard to defeat within us the tendency toward blaspheming God. That means cursing, using God's name to slander someone. Or perjury, using God's name to support that which is a lie. Or unnecessary oaths, when we use God's name lightly, without thought, without reverence. As those whom God has redeemed and restored, we must not allow our tongues to be used in service to that which would dishonor God or do anything other than magnify His name. In fact, our love for Him should go even further. God wants us to be so passionate about Him that we're unwilling to even tolerate the misuse of God's name. James says in chapter 4, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. But on the other hand, he says, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So, if we hear God's name being misused, we must first inform, we need to teach, and then we need to warn. We don't do that the way that somewhat ham-handed youth group did. Go up and just barrel in. No, no, no. You pull the person aside and you talk to them in private where you won't embarrass them. Young people, listen to this. And then humbly you say, listen, I don't think you meant to do it. But when you use God's name or when you use Jesus' name, you're invoking His reputation. And when you use it thoughtlessly like that, or when you use it in a curse, 
You dishonor God. And that hurts my feelings. But even worse, you dishonor the God who one day will judge you. And I don't want to see that happen to you. So, for my sake, for your sake, for God's sake above all, can you not do that? And you know what? Nine times out of ten, they're going to hear the care and the concern in your voice and they're going to see the lengths to which you went to not embarrass them and they're going to do their best and they're going to slip up again. But all you'll have to do is look at them and say, ah, and they'll get it. But your calling, our calling, is to defend the honor of God's name. That's our kingly calling. Our prophetic calling is to proclaim the excellency of our holy God. And that means that we're called to confess Him. Now, confessing Him rightly demands a knowledge of God. And that's a knowledge that many in our world lack. It's become fashionable, in fact, to say, over the last couple decades especially, that we all serve the same God. You know, I mean, Muslims understand God in one way and Hindus understand Him in different ways, but they're just understanding different aspects of the real God, the one God. And you know, Jehovah's Witnesses might serve Him in one way while Christians serve Him in a different way and Catholics in a different way yet, but it's still the same God. We're just all seeing Him from different aspects. That's what they say. But folks, it's a lie. We cannot all be serving the same God because... What we confess about God, what we believe about God is radically different. It's incompatible. The God we confess is not the same God as the Muslims, the Hindus, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, etc. They do not serve the triune God revealed in Scripture, and so they serve a false God. And unless you know the true God, you can't honor Him, you can't confess Him. By God's grace, we've been given the knowledge of the true God. That shouldn't puff us up. We didn't do that on our own. We didn't earn that. But it does give us a responsibility. Psalm 96, which called us to worship this evening, describes our prophetic calling. First of all, the part we heard earlier, describes our calling to confess who God is. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Proclaim the good news of His salvation day to day. Declare His glory among the nation, His wonders among all peoples. We're called to confess that He is the only true God. That He's the God who saves all who trust in Him. That He's the King of kings and the judge of all nations. And that He's the glorious one who truly deserves our praise. And then the psalmist says, The Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. So we're to confess the works of God. We need to tell people. All of this stuff you're studying in science, all of this stuff that you have to do with out in the world, that's what God made. He made every single molecule. And He's the one who raised up and established the mighty mountains. He's the one who provides food for every creature every moment of every day. He's the one who ordains great catastrophes and He does so for His perfect will. And He's also the one who sends the relief that delivers. All that we have comes from His fatherly hand and therefore it is to Him that we must look and Him whom we must honor. And then we confess God's holiness. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. O worship the Lord. In the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him. 
all the earth. Our God alone is holy. That means He is perfect. He is without flaw. He is worthy of all our praise and honor. And we need to tell folks that because inherently they know that. But from the very start in their sin, they've been hiding that. They've been trying to replace the glory of God with the, the faded glory of a world that is broken. And so we need to show them where their honor really ought to go, where their worship really ought to be placed. And then finally, the psalmist instructs us, Say among the nations the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. And all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. For He is coming. He is coming to judge the world. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with its truth. We need to let the world know, this is our prophetic calling, that one way or another they will confess the Lord. They can confess Him now with joy and celebration. Or they can confess Him unwillingly, grieving at the foot of His throne. But one way or another they will confess Him. Now brothers and sisters, that's not necessarily a call to street preaching. For some ministers called to that task, that's, there's a place for that. But for all of us, this is a calling to profess the excellency of God in every place where He puts us. Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. In other words, our confession of God must permeate all of life. Whether preaching from a pulpit or chatting with a friend, whether feeding the homeless at a shelter or fixing an engine whether speaking with learned men at the university or with little babies who can't even speak back. Our calling is to confess God. Sometimes that's a calling to confess Him explicitly. You're talking with your new roommate at college or with your friend at school or your co-worker and you're expressing what you believe about the true God. That's an explicit calling to confess or the implicit calling to confess as we reflect Him in the honest way we deal with people, in the love and the compassion we show toward those who are hurting, in the way that we refuse to take part in unrighteous acts, all that we do must confess God, either implicitly or explicitly. And that should drop, drop us to our knees. I don't know about you, but this doesn't make me nervous. Speaking to a big group of people doesn't bother me. It's the one-on-one -on -one stuff that gets me shaken in my boots. Because then it's just the two of us. And what if they ask a question I can't answer? What if they start probing in places that I'm uncomfortable with? But you know what gives me confidence? God has promised that when we seek His help in Jesus' name, He will answer. And Jesus told us not to worry about what we'll say even when they bring us before princes and magistrates because He, through the Holy Spirit, will tell us at that time what to say. So pray that God would give you the wisdom to know what to speak. Pray that God would give you the insight to give the answers to the questions that they ask. Ask Him for the courage to speak rather than remaining silent. And ask Him to give you eyes to see the opportunities He's setting before you. And then having prayed, 
Go give yourself something to say. That means, young people, we need to study God's Word. If we're called to confess Him, if we're called to be His prophets in the world, we need to know what He did. We need to know what He's like. We need to know what His Word says. And that means every morning you get up and you study a little piece of it. And you hold on to that little piece throughout the day. And you will be amazed. If you're praying that prayer and doing that study, you will be amazed how many times the opportunity God sets before you requires that piece of Scripture you saw just that morning. But our calling out of gratitude for what He has done for us, our calling is to prepare and to pray that the world might know the One whom they were designed to confess. And then finally, we're called to the priestly task of promoting the sacrifice of our grateful hearts. It's the last point, but it's, it's important. Listen, since A.D. 70, God's people have not had an altar. At the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the altar was destroyed. And that's why in our church, we don't have an altar, do we? We have the table for the Lord's Supper. We have the the font for the baptism. We have the pulpit where the Word of God is brought forward. But we don't have an altar because Jesus offered the last atoning sacrifice. But that doesn't mean that we don't have any sacrifices. Hebrews 10 urges us. In verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That language, being sprinkled, being washed, is sacrifice language. That's what happened with the sacrifices of the Old Testament. The, the, the thank offerings, they were washed. Their blood was sprinkled. They were set upon the altar to be consumed. But today we draw near, not an animal on our behalf. We have become the sacrifice. Through our works, through our worship, through our very words, we are to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. In Psalm 50, the Lord denounces the offerings of bulls and goats on which Israel was relying. Not because those weren't important. They were. He had commanded them. But they thought just doing the act was enough. And God said, no. Instead, he says, offer God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. He didn't want the flesh of bulls and goats. That wasn't the point. What he wanted was the hearts of his people. He wanted their trust. He wanted their confession. He wanted their love. And so he assures them, whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. He wants us to confess him with our lips and to confess him with our lives. That's the sacrifice that he, offers, or he, that he wants us to offer. And when we do that, he delights in us. Folks, that's our priestly calling. And it's a calling, first of all, to prayer. God wants us to be open in our prayer. That's kind of hard when you're young, when you aren't used to praying in front of people. My catechism students will recall the times I've asked them to pray in class. Guys, that's on purpose. That's to give you practice praying publicly. Not because God doesn't know that we need His help. That's not why He calls us to pray. He calls us to pray so that we have the opportunity to acknowledge in our hearts and to confess before men He's the one in whom we trust. 
for our salvation, for our health and our strength, for success, for wisdom, for joy, for everything. We trust in Him. And we need to openly confess that in our prayer. And He wants us to praise. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses taught Israel to sing, I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. Moses was teaching God's people to praise Him for all that He is, for all that He's, he's done, for all the excellency that comprises Him. That's our calling. That should be our joy, to praise Him. But that's hard, isn't it? Because we live in a culture that... ...like that. We live in a culture that... ...wants you to keep your faith to yourself... ...lest you make someone uncomfortable. But once you start doing it, and once you ask God for help in doing it, it's so easy. And you'll find opportunities on every side. Someone says... He did a really good job there. And you respond by saying, well, praise the Lord. I'm thankful that God gave me the ability. Someone says, what a beautiful home you've been, you have. You say, isn't God gracious? He gave me far more than I deserve. Someone says, how are you doing today? I'm doing far better than I deserve. God is good. And with those little points of praise, we can honor God wherever we go and give other people implicitly the opportunity and the the permission to praise God openly themselves. Brothers and sisters, the point is, our tongue is such a small part of us, but it is powerful. It can condemn us if we use it to, you, to, to reveal that we take God lightly. But if we use it to praise Him, if we use it to honor Him, not only can we delight God with our tongues, but we can lead those around us To see their calling to praise Him, to honor Him, to glorify the Lord our God. No man uses his tongue perfectly. Not in this life. But if we pray, if we ask, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God will cause us to use our tongues to bring Him glory. And that's why we were made. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we desire, we desire to do what You want of us to glorify You, to lift Your name on high. And so we pray that You would teach us to prevent the misuse of Your holy name, to proclaim Your excellence as our God. And we pray that You would promote within us the sacrifice of grateful hearts. Lord, You are wonderful indeed in all Your ways. Teach us to be open in our delight in You. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.